We're continuing our series on the gospel according to Matthew this morning. And Jesus is about to square off with the religious leaders of his day once again. This is the second time in this gospel account that the Pharisees went out of their way to challenge Jesus' teachings and his practices. But this time, these Pharisees came all the way to Galilee from Jerusalem to question Jesus. These were the big guns. Jesus had obviously gotten their attention to such an extent that they sent a delegation to walk 135 kilometers just to question a local rabbi. That's about a four to five day trip or a round trip of about 270 kilometers or about eight to 10 days of walking. They must have really wanted to question Jesus. Jesus was growing in popularity, which meant there was growing opposition as well. But the opposition wasn't simply because Jesus was becoming so popular. It was because Jesus' teachings were fundamentally different from the teachings of the Pharisees. The Pharisees would have felt alarmed at Jesus' evident disregard for their for their teachings, for their lengthy and detailed religious traditions that they considered totally binding on the people of Israel, even though they were simply man-made traditions. The Pharisees would have felt alarmed by by Jesus' unconcern about what they felt so strongly about. At first, this chapter looks like just a collection of stories, disconnected, random, The religious leaders challenged Jesus regarding their religious rituals, in this case, washing hands before you eat, which actually isn't a bad thing. Jesus heals a Canaanite woman's daughter. Jesus feeds 4,000 people, which is not long after just feeding 5,000 people, which Dave Perry preached about last Sunday. But when we look closer, we can find a strong thematic connection between these stories that reveal an overall theme, a theme being the gospel, the good news of Jesus. But it's important to recognize that what makes the gospel such good news is that it deals a blow to extremely bad news that we must first be made aware of. That bad news is that Humanity has rebelled against God, and because we've rebelled, we are all doomed to the punishment of suffering, eternal separation from God for all eternity until unless something is done. And the good news is that Jesus came to do something about it so that we can come to Jesus just as we are and be saved. In this chapter, Jesus not only makes it abundantly clear how bad the situation is. But but then he demonstrates his love in a way that I don't think anyone actually expected. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your written account of Jesus' life. And thank you for the, the truths we can learn from reading that account. Thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself to us through Jesus. Thank you for showing us the the tough spot we're in, the, the bad news. 
And then thank you for doing something about it, for the good news of the gospel. We want to learn from you this morning about that good news. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to just start by reading Matthew 15, uh, 1 to 20. We'll start with that section. It's going to appear behind me in the English Standard Version. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what would you have gained, what you would have gained from me is, has been given to God, he need not honor his father or mother. So for the sake of your traditions, you've made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And Jesus said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. The Pharisees did not travel all the way from Jerusalem just to argue about hand washing. You've got to have a much better reason than that for walking 135 long kilometers, which was the most common mode of travel back then. I knew a guy quite a few years ago who was a bit of a homebody who decided, for reasons I won't bother to explain, that he wanted to walk across Canada. But he realized that that he had to get into shape first. So he said, Ken, I'm going to walk to the 59er on Highway 59 and back uh, next Saturday just to sort of see what kind of shape I'm in. Do you want to come along? you want to join me? And being the clever person that I was, I said, sure, let's go for a walk. So off we went for a 32-kilometer walk. So we walked the first 16 kilometers, and we talked as we went. And when we got to the 59er, my friend said, You know, Ken, maybe you can call Fiona and see if she can give us a ride back. (laughs) And while we waited, we had a burger and fries. (laughs) Well, then the next day, I attempted to get out of bed. (laughs) And the pain 
was tremendous. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't sure whether I was paralyzed or just so much in pain that I couldn't move, but I can't remember how long it took me to get out of bed. And I'm sure my friend was the same. Yet the Pharisees walked 135 kilometers because they were indignant that Jesus wasn't teaching and enforcing the traditions of their elders, which, given Jesus' growing influence among the multitudes, might result in the Pharisees losing their influence. And then mass defilement could happen, and then perhaps the judgment of God. But Jesus was also indignant. Indignant that the Pharisees were putting their traditions of men before the commandments of God. And he gave one clear example of how they were doing that. And then Jesus turned to the people who were listening to this battle of the titans. And he basically said, look, let's get something straight regarding this issue of defilement. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. It's what comes out of the mouth and out of their heart. I've been trying to imagine the aftermath of that scene when Jesus was finally alone with his disciples. Picture Jesus exiting that scene, that confrontation with a pained expression of mingled anger and grief on his face. I can see him staring at Nothing in particular, as his mind was fixed on the painful thoughts of his people being led astray by misguided shepherds and misplaced emphases. He might have been thinking longingly, these are my people, and they so desperately need the good news of my kingdom that I came here to tell them and to show them. Then cautiously, Peter breaks the silence and he asks, could you explain that parable to us? You know, the one about what defiles a person? Jesus probably looked at Peter with both love and disappointment as he said, are you also still without understanding? Jesus then proceeded to explain in clear language the difference between material purity and moral purity. And this distinction seemed to be something new to his disciples. This idea that defilement comes from morals inside us instead of from materials outside us was a radical departure from the focus of the Pharisees on externals. And it challenged the generally accepted understanding of how we come to God, how we're supposed to come to God in ritual purity. It was like Jesus was asking, do you think that if you wash your body, it will make you righteous in God's eyes? Do you actually think your heart will be clean if you wash your hands well enough or if you eat the right foods? Do you think that even if you do everything right on the outside, you'll impress God? And do you really think that all of that will change your heart, which is what really matters? In other words, even the nicest, kindest person that you'll ever meet still needs their heart to be cleansed to stand before a holy God. 
This is something our current culture needs to hear. It's not what you do that makes you a sinner. It's what's already in your heart. And when someone says, hey, I'm a good person, say, well, wait a minute. Is your heart clean enough to stand before a holy God? Surely you've noticed what's been all over the news lately regarding sexual misconduct among so many of our shiny, polished politicians and actors. People who look all shiny on the outside, but we see what's on the inside. And yet even we, in our culture, emphasize hand-washing more than heart-washing. I have an idea. What if in every bathroom, every public washroom, we put up heart-washing signs instead of hand-washing signs? Check these out. This one says, don't forget to wash your hands. You might see that in a public washroom. What about this next one? Don't forget to cleanse your heart. Like, what if we saw that in a bathroom at the restaurant? How about this next one? It says, did you wash them? Hand washing prevents disease. Well, what if we use this instead? Did you wash it? Heart washing prevents guilt. Like, how would people feel if they found that in their restaurant at, at the restaurant? This one says, wash your hands, wet hands, apply soap, wash for 20 seconds, rinse well, dry hands, turn off tap with towel. Well, let's use this instead. Wash your heart, wet with tears, apply gospel, wash in the blood, rinse with tears of joy, dry tears, leave tap on. Hey? Let's put those up in our restaurants. In fact, if you want copies from me, I can print them for you. You can sneak into restaurants and put them on their walls. Not a bad idea. The Pharisees' focus on the exterior simply meant that they were trying to keep themselves looking pure on the outside by the practices they kept, but they still remained filthy on the inside because there was so much in their hearts that they simply couldn't deal with or get rid of us or get rid of. Are we any different? No matter how strict our observance of any external religious practice, those outward practices are powerless to wash our hearts of the evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witnesses, slander, or any other sin that dwells in our heart. Jesus is essentially telling us that we're simply too bad inside to hope that any external conformity to any religious practice will be enough to save us. I'm bad. You're bad. We're all bad inside. This is about recognizing that what defiles us is that our badness is a condition of our heart from the day we're born. It's not just from wrong things we've done. John Piper is a preacher who's been outspoken on this topic of recognizing that what defiles us is actually inside us. Check out the following video clip of John Piper on this topic. We are bad. Are bad. John Piper is bad. 
just do bad things. I am bad. And so are you. Bad. Bad. We're bad. I mean, in the bad sense. And yet the Pharisees were still trying to depend on themselves to polish up their exteriors rather than depend on God to cleanse their heart despite the fact that their hearts continued to be full of filth. They were trying to come to God with evil and defiled hearts which they could do nothing about no matter how hard they tried. So how hard are you trying this morning? I'm not just asking this question of people who don't know Jesus and are are trying to earn their way into heaven. I'm asking those who know Jesus but are still struggling hard against sin in your heart and in your life that you just can't seem to get free from. Temptations that keep overpowering you despite being a new creation made new by Jesus Christ, you still feel defiled by sin that's kept hidden by shame. And I'm asking those who keep beating themselves up every time you fail in some area or another because you feel you need to measure up to some external standard in order to be loved and accepted by God. And so you beat yourself and you blame yourself and you feel lousy about yourself every time you blow it. There are two levels in which we can respond to this. As people who know Jesus and as those who don't. If you don't know Jesus today, I want to tell you that you don't need to clean up your exterior before coming to Jesus. You can't clean up your heart without his help. But please know this. Jesus wants to and can cleanse your heart of all the wrong things that you feel powerless to stop doing. He died on the cross to take the punishment upon himself for the rebellion that's in each of us so that we can be forgiven and set free from sin. If you do know Jesus today and you've submitted to him as your Lord and Savior, but particular stubborn sins feel like they're defiling your life with Jesus, don't believe the lie that God's love for you is diminished because of the sin that you're struggling with in your heart. But please know this. God's Word tells us that God can truly wash our hearts and lives of those stubborn, persistent sins. And the way that we can allow Him to do that is to boldly bring them into the light by confessing them to God and to a trusted brother or sister in Christ. 1 John 1, 6, and 7 says, if we, have, if we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in the darkness, meaning persisting in sin, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, meaning confessing our sins as he is in the light, 
We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And then verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In fact, Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer to confess our sins on a daily basis. Every time we do, it's an expression of humility. And God's promise is, He gives grace to the humble. God's grace flows as we humble ourselves, which helps us to grow in inward purity, which has an inevitable effect on the many choices we make in our everyday life. We begin to grow in God. You see, it's not that God doesn't care about externals. He does care about how we live our lives. But it's not what determines our salvation. And he wants us to depend on him to be our helper with that. God wants us to repeatedly come to him with the sin that's in our hearts, to accept Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as sufficient for all our sins, and to then continually ask God for help to live our lives according to his ways and his strength and his leading through a personal and direct relationship with him. That's what he's after. That's what he was so upset about, that the Pharisees were trying to put this heavy load on people that they couldn't carry instead of people being set free from that load to let Jesus wash us and help us to grow in him. That's the bad news. The next thing we see in this chapter is Jesus went away from there and withdrew. Let's read verses 21 to 27. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. It says that Jesus withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. This wasn't a short trip, like a walk to the 59er. Tyre and Sidon was about an 80-kilometer journey to walk that red line to those two cities. It would be like walking from here to Carmen, Manitoba, or from here to Roland, Manitoba. That's about the distance that Jesus walked. And not only was it a walk of at least two to three days, but it was well outside the Jewish region of those Roman territory, of the Roman territories in that area. Tyre and Sidon were Gentile cities. You can see that that green area there, that's Jewish region. Jesus was well outside the Jewish region in Gentile territory. I don't believe Jesus would have taken a trip like this into Gentile territory on a whim. I believe he had a reason for it. Jesus didn't do anything randomly. It was all purposeful. 
according to how his father instructed him. So why would the father want Jesus to suddenly withdraw all the way to Sidon to spend time among the Gentiles? Why would he want him to go all that way outside his familiar territory, which was something respectable Jewish rabbis simply didn't do? The one thing this very unique passage has in common with the passage we just looked at is the issue of cleanliness and purity. There's a common denominator here. The issue of cleanliness is at issue. To a Pharisee, being among the Gentiles meant risk being polluted by the Gentiles. Pharisees didn't even go into the homes of Gentiles, let alone wander that far into the region of the Gentiles. So the Pharisees would have seen Jesus' trip to these two cities as far more dangerous, far more offensive than not washing before eating. And I believe that Jesus went there to be a, a living illustration of what had he had just taught the people in his conflict with the Pharisees. A living illustration of his total disregard for the Pharisaical view of defilement. He's going to live it. Suddenly Jesus is in two Gentile cities as if he's saying, I'll show you how little concern I have about being defiled by what's outside me. I'll show you by spending a week or two among a precious people that you would, that you would think would defile you if you were among them. And not only that, but I'm going to love on these people. I'm going to bless these people, starting with this woman's daughter. But if that was Jesus' perspective on why he went to Tyre and Sidon as a living illustration, it's certain that this pagan woman he encountered would not have felt Worthy, She would have known that Jews look very far down on Gentiles. Yet she seemed to somehow know that Jesus was no ordinary rabbi. She referred to him as Lord and the Son of David, which was a messianic term. Perhaps Jesus' reputation had spread that far. But Jesus' initial response to her, appear, to, to her asking him, approaching him, does not feel that sensitive feels rather insensitive. It feels rude even, harsh. But I believe that Jesus was quite open to healing this woman's daughter the entire time. I believe there was design in how he was replying to her. One reason I believe that is why would the Father want Jesus deep inside Gentile territory if he didn't want him to respond to the first Gentile who approaches him asking for mercy. This is something really remarkable, that Jesus is even there in the first place. So why would Father want him to be passive while he's there? He says says to her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And yet in Matthew chapter 8, he's already healed the centurion's servant without a single objection. It didn't even, uh, why didn't he say that to the centurion? I'm only here for the lost sheep of Israel. I simply find it impossible to believe that there would not be compassion in Jesus as he heard this woman's cry for her tormented daughter. After all, the only people we ever see Jesus truly being harsh with are the people he was just with, the Pharisees. I believe that Jesus responded this way to test her faith. 
to test the faith of this woman. And when this woman refused to give up, refused to be offended, refused to disrespect Jesus, Jesus knew that she was the woman, a woman of the kind of humility and faith whom he could offer healing to for her daughter. He could see her faith in full color. I love how the great preacher Campbell Morgan responds to this story. He writes, Oh, the glory of the king, all the difficulties in Jerusalem among those men who were always washing their hands. Christ has no difficulty with the man or woman who is polluted with sin when that man or woman sighs their soul to him in faith. He knew the strength of her faith, and he wanted to bring it out in all of its strength until it flamed in the sight of men. I think that's what Jesus was after. He was drawing out that faith. How he responded caused her faith to rise. So where are you at this morning? Are you, are any of you also sighing unto the Lord because of a circumstance in which he appears to be testing your faith? If it's okay for me to allude to this once again, after many years, many of you know that my wife and I literally sighed to the Lord for 27 long years as we watched my wife's kidneys deteriorate before the Lord wonderfully answered our prayers. But I can tell you honestly, in all those years, I didn't always feel that I had a great deal of faith. 27 years is a long time. There were times I felt like I had no faith. But I did have enough faith to keep asking for 27 years and not give up. And though there were times where I did feel like I was losing heart, I refused to give up hoping, and we kept returning to Jesus again and again and again for 27 years. And many of you know how the story ended. God gave Fiona a new kidney from her brother, and she's been granted a whole new lease on life. God tests our faith sometimes to draw it out of us. In the same way, just as this pagan Gentile woman surely knew she wasn't perfect on the outside, she knew that. But her focus wasn't on herself. Her focus was on Jesus. She knew in her heart he could set her daughter free. Why look in the mirror when Jesus is standing right in front of me? Why would we do that? Stop this detrimental self-examination when Jesus is right in front of you and wants you staring at him. What a contrast to how the Pharisees approached Jesus. They came arrogant and critical. This pagan woman, pagan woman, came desperate and hopeful. Surely Jesus wanted his disciples to see that difference. What are you seeking God for? Are you weary in asking Are you confused by the Lord's delays in answering? Well, don't give up. Don't write yourself off. Jesus is looking at your heart, and he can even see the tiniest mustard seed of faith that's there. He wants to bless you. And Jesus' answers are always perfect, and God is good.
All the time. So look at what happens next. The very next thing that happens in this passage is Jesus travels back to the Sea of Galilee. And then it says he heals all who came to him and then fed 4,000 men plus women and children. Mark captures this really well, but let's read it. I'm going to read first from Matthew here, where starting in verse 29. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them on, they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered, When they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and they've had nothing to eat. I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, Jesus took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied, and they took up the seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women And children, think of the party that was going on. And that mountainside as they brought the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And he healed them all so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. We see these pictures. on the. I try to find a picture on the internet. And do you know how hard it is to find a picture where they're just having a party in front of Jesus on a mountainside? There isn't one. Every time you find a picture of the crowd on the mountainside, they're all sitting in a very orderly fashion in front of them, just like Canada. (laughs) They were having a party. Mark captures the excitement even better when he says, they were astonished beyond measure. And all this was before he even fed the 4,000 people, plus women and children. Just seven loaves of bread with a few fish is all he needed. But there's something unique going on here that I believe Matthew's first century readers would have caught on to that we probably could easily miss looking at this passage. Notice that it says, it says, they glorified the God of Israel. That's something only Gentiles would say. If they were Jews, they said, it would have said, and they glorified God. No, they glorified the God of Israel. You see, in Mark, on the next slide, we see in Mark, the the next, there we go, Decapolis, at the bottom of that map, is where Jesus went to on the Sea of Galilee. He didn't just go back to Capernaum, back to his home turf. He went around to the other side of the lake, the same side of the lake where he healed the demoniac by sending all those demons into the swine. He went there to the Decapolis, Gentile territory. There's no other place in the four gospel accounts where Jesus spends so much time among Gentiles than in this chapter. You won't find it anywhere else. Why? It's a living illustration of the fact that it's not what's outside 
It's what inside that defiles you. And I've come to make you clean. In fact, look at all these Gentiles in front of me. They're all unclean. They eat pork. They don't wash their hands before they eat. And I'm going to feed them right here and now. Wow. The Pharisees come to Jesus offended with their challenges and objections. But these people come with hope and expectation. The Pharisees respond with offense. But these people respond with worship as they glorify God. These Gentiles, they don't deserve this. But Jesus pours out his blessing on them. Despite the unbelief, they don't even know God. They don't even worship God. In the beginning of his ministry, in the Sermon on the Mount, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he taught them. His disciples came to him, and he taught them. But here, Matthew writes, in the same book, but later on in the book, he went up on the mountain and sat down, and great crowds came to him. Not just his disciples. Jesus was widening the door to say his invitation is open to all. The Pharisees wanted to restrict access to God. And Jesus, his message to us today is, my door is wide open for you. Whatever's in your heart, whatever you're struggling with, whatever level of faith you feel you have or don't have, my door is open to you. Come and let me help you live your life by my power. Who in this place feels unworthy today. Does anyone here ever feel unworthy before God? Well, Jesus wanted to show the world a different response than that of the Pharisees. He wanted to show us a loving invitation that we could come to him with all our badness, whatever our shame, whatever our struggles, to be forgiven and set free and transformed by him. In the same way he satisfied that multitude, He will satisfy the hunger in our soul. The message of Matthew 15 is come to Jesus this morning, every day, just as you are, and lay the sins of your heart before him. Lay your desperate longings before him, because he will never turn us away. Whatever the sin in your heart, whatever the desperate longing you're looking for an answer to, Jesus wants you to come, and he won't turn you away.